Romans chapter 13. I trust for the final time today, Romans chapter 13. We're working our way through the book of Romans. We have been for a few years, and we're working through the book, uh, through the chapter, um, through chapter 13, rather, for a few weeks here. It is coming to the practical section and really the climax for which Paul intended to write. That the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has moral implications. In other words, it's not just enough to believe truth about the gospel without living the truth about the gospel. And beginning in Romans 12 to the end through 16, he really accents and gives us specific applications of what living the gospel out in real life looks like. This last little paragraph in chapter 13 is a a, a wake-up call. In fact, we've titled this a a wake-up call from God. He he taps us on the shoulder as we slumber, and you'll understand a little bit more about what that means as Paul explains. Follow along as I read in verses 11 through 14. Romans 11, excuse me, Romans 13, verse 11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I wonder if any of you are like me, you have a, a recurring dream, a recurring nightmare. I don't dream very often, or at least I don't remember that I dream, and I certainly don't have very many nightmares, but I want to confess to you that there is one that I have every few months. I've had it for, for well over a couple of decades. It, it comes and it comes and it, and it goes, and, it, and I think I'm done with it, and then it comes back, and I, I wake up with a sick stomach, a pounding heart, and sweaty palms. Here's how it goes. I see myself walking up the stairs of Mission Road Bible Church. It used to be where I preached before in years past. Same dream, though. I'm walking up the stairs, sick to my stomach. I get to the pulpit, and I look down with an open Bible and realize not only do I not have any notes, I didn't study and you're all there and you're not very friendly I hear things like so 
someone from in this area, I don't know who it is, says, what do you have to say now? And it ends the same way. It ends with everyone laughing and leaving. That's a preacher's nightmare. I, I'm serious. I have this, and I wake up going, no, no. And so I, I promise you, I, I don't show up unprepared. It's just I'm terrified of, of getting up here and looking down and having nothing to say. I think it's my worst fear to show up to preach for God unprepared unstudied and, and have nothing to say there's a good healthy fear of showing up unprepared for things nothing compares nothing matches the idea of being unprepared not when you show up somewhere unprepared but being unprepared when Jesus appears in the clouds as judge and king and finds you in that moment in whatever state you are. Are you, will you be prepared for his coming? John certainly understood that. First John chapter 2, verse 28, he says, Little children, abide in Jesus so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink away from him, listen, in shame at his coming. You ever think about whether or not you are prepared for the Lord's return in the next moment? If he shows up and calls the believers who have given faith in his work on the cross, glorious salvation with him and he comes to take us home are, are you ready for that moment are you ready to show him what you've been doing thinking, saying and even more importantly if you're iffy about whether you know Jesus and he shows up before this service is over are you ready or have you postponed getting your life right before him Spurgeon always said, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's. Are you prepared for the return of Jesus Christ? He left in the clouds saying, I am coming back. And the angel told those men who saw him disappear in the clouds, he's going to return in the same way. I got to admit, sometimes when I see the sun breaking through the clouds, I just wonder what will it be like when he's there, exposing, judging, rewarding, and honoring. What will that be like? Now, maybe you haven't had my dream of showing up unprepared for something, but did any of you have a, an experience maybe in junior high, high school, college, postgraduate studies, where you forgot or didn't write down an assignment or a test and you showed up and everyone was ready but you. Do you know that feeling like, oh no. Multiply that times infinity and you have the regret or the longing of being prepared for the return of Christ. Paul writes this last paragraph in Romans 13 to make sure that we're ready. 
and to make sure that we know where we are on God's timetable. God has listed out every event in eternity from the beginning and the creation all the way to the consummation. He's planned it all out and he is exactly, precisely, perfectly on time. Peter told us, we looked at this last week, God doesn't count eternity and time like you and I do. To him, a thousand years, one day, it's all the same because he sees it all as the same. So Paul uses this section as a wake-up call. We looked at this last week. To, it's an alarm clock to ask us to evaluate if we're slumbering and sleeping and haven't awakened to the reality of the light that's going to expose us one day when Jesus returns. Are we comfortable in a deep spiritual sleep, not awakened to the reality that He is coming and it might be today? Now, we began this last week and we just got through one of two points. It was the simplest point, honestly. Two urgent responses to God's wake-up call. Two urgent responses to God's wake-up call. The first, we looked at last week, number one, wake up to immediate awareness of Christ's return. This is in verses, verses 11 and 12. He says, do this, stop right there, the this, I think, extends all the way back to chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the gospel have ethical, moral, ontological change in your life and effect in your life. Be sanctified, be holy. Then he says, knowing the time. Now, the question is, what, what time is it? On God's calendar, what time is it? And he gives us an interesting insight. He says, actually, it's the latest time it's ever been. I know that seems obvious, but it's a point that he makes. He says, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, and the sleep is to live in the deeds of darkness, as we'll see in a moment. For salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, salvation is not becoming justified or sanctified, becoming a Christian, because he says salvation is nearer to us than when that happened, when we believe. He's talking about the glorification of the saints, the ultimate consummation, the salvation of our bodies when all will be made right and we enter into his presence. Then he says this as a warning in chapter, in verse 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. That's his way of saying the darkness that, that pervades this world, the wicked worldview, the lack of justice, all that we see wrong in the sinful, wicked planet is almost gone, and the day is almost upon us. It's near. We are just before dawn, and that will be broken by the return of Jesus Christ in a physical, resurrected body in the clouds to call his saints home with him, after which, I believe, a seven-year tribulation will ensue, and after that, a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, after which we'll have eternity with him in the glorified presence of us and him together, seeing each other as we really are. That's number one. Wake up to the awareness of Christ's return. It's almost here, in other words. Now we're going to drill into number two, the second urgent response to God's wake-up call. And this has some points, some subpoints, and some subpoints to the subpoints because it's that intricate an argument. I just want to let you know. Wise up to personal readiness for Christ's return. 
wise up. Be wise enough to know that you need to be ready, that we need to be aware, we need to be awaiting, we need to be prepared because he's coming. There will be five ways with a few subpoints under one of them, five ways to wise up. The first way is this, put off the deeds of darkness. Put off the deeds of darkness. He says in the middle of verse 12, therefore, because we know, therefore means because we know that this world is passing away and Jesus is on his way, because of that, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Because we're at the dawn, because the time of our salvation is nearer than when we believe, there are moral implications that must be considered and obeyed. That's what therefore is there for. Now he says, first, we are to lay aside, literally put off, these deeds of darkness. Now, don't miss the fact. Please look at your Bibles and don't miss the fact. He doesn't say, if perchance, maybe, you might be in the rare category of those who might possibly have exercised in the past or currently deeds of darkness. This isn't a special wicked group. <laughs> this is all of us. He doesn't say, if you participate in the deeds of darkness, he assumes that we have and we do. And do we really have to argue with him on that? Would anyone say, I don't struggle with the deeds of darkness, and if you do, wait till we get to verse 13. He assumes that we've all done such deeds and must put them off, these deeds of darkness. So your question is, and it's a good one, what are the deeds of darkness? Now, you have to reach all the way back to the beginning section in chapter 12, verse 1. The deeds of darkness are the characteristics of someone who refuses to wake up to the reality of Christ's return and stays with their mind being conditioned by the world and the world's values not being transformed by the renewing presence of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus as a believer in the gospel. It's being conformed to this world. That's what it is. That's what the deeds of darkness are. Ephesians 5.11 should sound familiar. Paul told them, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Wow. Very simply, darkness hides, light discloses. It's a real simple spiritual principle. Darkness hides, light discloses. That's why David says in Psalm 139, darkness and light, they're alike to thee. They're just the same to you, God. You see in the dark. Let me ask you just an intuitive question. When does most crime happen, day or night? Why? Because people think they can hide from others, and some actually think that when the lights go out, somehow their deeds or thoughts are hidden from God. Now, in verse 13, in just a moment, he's going to give us a, a mini list of such deeds. It's exemplary, and, but it's not exhaustive. It's, a, it's amazing to me to 
I fly a fair amount, and you're always going through these metal detectors, right, at the airport. It's amazing to watch some people at the airport go through the metal detector after there is this droning person saying, empty your pockets, no metal, take your watch off, take your shoes off, and they're just saying it over and over. There are signs. It's written out. It's on your ticket. It couldn't be more clear. And then you have this guy who goes through the metal detector with his phone in his pocket. And it lights up and beeps. And he goes, oh, I, 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 I didn't know. And you just want to say, well, you want to say a lot of things. But you just want to say, dude, everything starts with dude in this moment. Dude, she just told you to empty your pocket. How can you... How can you not know? And I find myself saying, you are so clueless. Now as a footnote, I flew home on Thursday of this week from somewhere and left my wallet in my pocket and lit that thing up like a Christmas tree. I had already written this illustration into this sermon at that point and felt like there would be no integrity for me to take it out at that point. So I'm an idiot too. I'm actually the captain of the idiots. Light exposes, darkness hides. God is the great detector. Just like that metal detector sees metal, God sees, exposes, identifies sin. Jesus lays out the critical issue in John. He said this in John 3.19. This is the judgment that light has come, specifically him, light has come into the world and men, listen, loved the darkness rather than the light. There it is. Why? For their deeds were evil. There it is. The deeds, evil, in the night, repulsed by the light that exposes them. We all know this intuitively. Now, I don't want to bring up a, a, a sour, uh, uh, painful subject, but let's just say, for argument's sake, in a hypothetical situation, you were driving down a certain road in, in the Kansas City area, not exactly honoring the speed limit, just for argument's sake. And then you hear a siren, and you see lights, and you pull over, and you're given a reminder, a memento, of your transgression, and the ability to pay the ticket and the fine for that transgression. How do you feel about that? What, are you more angry that you were caught or that you did that? Well, from books I've read, it's easier to be angry that you were caught than that you transgressed the law. Paul and Jesus are saying, do you love the light? Do you love to obey? Do you long and look for ways to obey? So, what are these deeds of darkness? Again, we're going to find some examples in verse 13 in a moment. But look for a moment at the 
passage here, we, we learn that there's not only something to lay aside, we'll, we'll get to that in verse 13, but there's also something to put on. So now we find a second way, and that's put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. Now, I've got to confess to you, I looked at several translations and tried to understand the, um, the, the nuances of why they translated this word the way they did. It's hoplon in the Greek. Hoplon is translated almost everywhere else in the New Testament. Not armor, but it's translated weapons. It's actually plural in the Greek here. It's, it's plural. Put on the weapons of light. Now, I understand how it's armor, and armor can include your weapons, but he's talking about something offensive, and the idea of armor almost sounds defensive, protective, right? He says, put on the, take up the weapons so that you can fight the battle to be in the light. Listen to the way this word is translated in a few other places. John 18, 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and hoplines and weapons. Same word as weapons of light. 2 Corinthians 6, 7, in the word of truth, the power of God, by the weapons, that's the same word, of righteousness, for the right hand and the left. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, the word is used in this way. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So I want you to change your mind when you see armor here. It's okay to see armor because there is a defensive measure of that. Read Ephesians chapter 6. There's the, the armor of God that I think Paul might have somewhat in mind here, but specifically the word means an offensive weapon. It's a sword. It's a a dagger. It's also used, by the way, as an instrument in chapter 6, verse 13. The point is that putting off the deeds of darkness involves a spiritual battle for which you and I must be outfitted. We're in a battle. And the enemy of your soul doesn't wait till the bell rings to come over and land a spiritual punch in your solar plex. He cheats. He's not fair. He doesn't take a break. He's an aggravating influence for our flesh that loves the darkness from which we were saved. The weapons of light here, the armor of light, the weapons of light are very clearly laid out in Romans. You know what they are? Two things. The righteousness of Christ, that's a weapon we have, and our own righteous sanctifying works and deeds, our, our, our change, our transformation. Living as those who belong to and know how to operate within the sphere of light. By the way, notice that in two verses, he says, put on the, uh, the armor, put on the weapons of, take up the weapons of light here. He also will say in two verses, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that was an accident. When he uses the same word, the same idea, put on within two verses, he obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understands the connection. And we're going to come back to that preparation and what we're putting on when we get to verse 14. There's a third way to wise up in verse 13. Behave, behave like a believer. 
behave like a believer. Verse 13, let us act, live, behave, walk. Let us behave properly as in the day, as in the sphere of righteousness. He's going to continue this imagery of light and darkness. Here it's not light, it's day, as opposed to the deeds of darkness and night. Here it's the daytime, the light. Now first thir verse 13 begins by instructing us to behave or live. <laughs> live like you're a believer. Because the end is near and he's coming for us to give an account. Behave properly as in the day. Remember he said, it's still night. It's before dawn. He wakes us up with that alarm. And he says, act like you're sober-minded and ready to live in the day. Even though it's still night spiritually. If you don't believe that, just turn on the news when you get home. It'll be obvious. To be prepared for the Lord's return means moral readiness. Now, we drill into this next verse and we find those examples I was talking to you about, the, the deeds of darkness. What are the deeds of darkness? He uses three couplets, three uh, uh, sins or vices that, that he pairs together. These aren't an exhaustive list. But he just says, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, I want to give you three insights, three, three couplets, three uh, little ways that you can um, apply this. Three couplets of application for behaving properly in the light, in the light of the Lord's return. What's the application of putting off the deeds of darkness and walking in the day or in the light? First is this, in self control in self-control he says let us verse 13 behave properly as in the day here's our first couplet not in carousing and drunkenness these first two examples of living in darkness and the two examples of the deeds of darkness have to do with exercising self-control with a mind-altering substance. Here, alcohol, drinking. Now, I, I know I was writing my notes earlier in the week, and I remember where I was when I wrote this sentence, that I know that speaking about drinking is a sensitive subject for many. And by the way, you need to know we're going to talk a lot about that and other gray areas in chapter four, for a whole chapter in chapter 14, because that's what it's about. And Paul's going to say, if you abuse your liberty, you're off base. If you judge people for using their liberty, you're off base. He is going to, no matter what your tendency is, you are going to be slapped and convicted by the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. But here he says, we're not carousing and being drunk. Now, I know what most of you are thinking. Well, of course, of course, I'm you know, falling down, slobbering drunk, not able to, to pass that test when the policeman pulls you over and you need to walk a straight line or put your finger on your nose. That's not exactly what he's talking about here. 
these two words here, carousing and drunkenness, come together to portray a night of partying. Now, it could be a literal night, but it also could be living in the darkness of this world and giving ourselves to partying, especially with drugs and alcohol specifically, mind-altering substances. Now, here's where some might even get more uncomfortable. How do you, how would Paul define drunkenness? I don't think that it's the same for every person. For some people, four or five ounces of an alcoholic beverage can do something to which it would do nothing to someone else. For some people, taking night all puts them into a, a, a different state and makes them pass out. Paul doesn't uh, uh, negate what Solomon said in, in Proverbs, that there's a medicinal use of of alcohol. Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. There's a medicinal use of that, but that's not in play here. I don't think he's talking about just being falling down, slobbering, drunk. That's a caricature of, of someone you can look at and immediately know they're under the influence. That's not Paul's definition, though. To find out what Paul means by drunkenness, we have to go to Ephesians 5.18. You know this verse very well. Do not be what? Drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Drunk and filled are parallel in that grammatical statement. Don't be drunk or influenced by wine, but be filled or influenced by the Holy Spirit. He parallels the control of the Holy Spirit with the control of alcohol on a person. The issue is, is this. It's influence on your mind or attitude or actions. You say, how much influence? Are you ready for this? Any influence. So before you say, well, I can do this or that, and you might be able to, if it changes your mind, your thinking, your attitude, and influences actions at all, Paul defines that as drunkenness, as being under the influence. Does it affect you? That's biblical drunkenness. Does it change you? Biblical drunkenness. Does it calm you down? Biblical drunkenness. Does it make you uninhibited? Biblical drunkenness. Does it relax you? Biblical drunkenness. It has an affect and an effect on you. The question is, does it have any effect on you, according to Paul, that's coming under the influence of alcohol? No, an alcoholic beverage crossing a person's lips, flowing down their throat, being digested, and then being eliminated a few hours later doesn't qualify as sin. It doesn't. But we'll get into what it means to enjoy that liberty, which I think that is, when we get into chapter 14. Just wait a couple weeks, we'll be there. The question is, does it bring any kind of influence over you. We will come back to this in a few weeks, but let me just give you a preview. I would never say that drinking an alcoholic beverage is sin. You know why? The Bible doesn't say that. But the Bible does say if it wields any sort of influence over your thinking, your acting, your attitude, 
It's sin. How much does it take to do that? You can't let the policeman and their little breathalyzer tell you. Only you and the Lord can know that. Actually, that's not true. The people around you might be able to identify that as well. Jesus left us with this warning. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day, the day when he comes back, will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. Having self-control. The second couplet he uses here, he says also in sexual purity. In sexual purity. We are to behave like a believer in self-control and behave like a believer in sexual purity. Look at the next little couplet in verse 13. Not living, behaving, not behaving in, in sexual promiscuity and in sensuality. Two interesting Greek words uh, means sexual sins and sensualities. Sexual promiscuity is any kind of sexual experience outside of marriage. Very clear. Any kind of sexual experience, mental or otherwise, outside of marriage. And the second word, aselgia, means living without moral restraint because of your lust. It's licentiousness, sensuality, lustful indulgence. My analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament says this, especially as indecent and outrageous sexual behavior such as debauchery, indecency, and flagrant immorality. And we find out in Hosea that alcohol can lower your sexual inhibitions. They go hand in glove. Now, I'm, uh, I'm in my mid-50s. And for some of you, that might seem really old. That used to seem old to me a long time ago, too. For others of you, I'm still a youngster. But let me tell you an undeniable observation I found from my 54 trips around the sun. The world is getting more and more overtly and demonstrably sexual and sensual. Is that a surprise to anybody? Have you seen it in your own lifetime, short or longer? The world is getting more and more unashamed about the sinful expressions of sex and the sinful expressions of sensuality, of immodesty, of impropriety. It's not surprising to me that sexual sin is chosen by Paul as an example of the deeds of darkness. And the range of sexual exploration and expression is becoming more and more creative in our day. Now, let me break this down into three little areas, okay? If I can. Um, I think we can break down sexual sin into three categories. Doing, thinking, and watching. Doing, thinking, and watching. You say, where did you get those? I got them from the Bible. Doing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says... For this is the will of God for you, your holiness, your sanctification. Then he explains that that is 
that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's talking about physical sexual sin. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles. Listen to this. Who do not know God. The point is, if you know God, you have sexual control. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is avenger of all these things. He says you can actually transgress and defraud someone either by sinning against them sexually or he says the brother here, it may be a man who's sinning sexually against a woman and he's offending her husband. Both interpretations fit. Just as we, oh, he says this, the Lord is the avenger in all these things. That is penetrating. That's a scary thing. The Lord is the avenger of those who've been sexually taken advantage of. Wow. Just as we also told you, solemnly warned you, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, sexual impurity, but in holiness and sanctification. Then he says this, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's the only sin in the New Testament that Paul or another apostle identifies that if you do this, God will avenge the person you've wronged. Oh, God will make all things right. This one's specific. He's speaking here about doing something sexually, physically, with someone who is not your spouse. That's the, that's the definition of sexual sin. Doing something with someone who's not your spouse. And then even in marriage, according to 1 Corinthians 7, there are rules for everything you do sexually being for the benefit and the pleasure of your partner, not even your own. This includes before you're married, and this includes after you're married. So part of being sexually pure is being sexually pure physically in what you do. But there's another category, and that is thinking. Doing and thinking. That's the next category. You say, where do you get that? If you think sexual thoughts about anyone who's not your spouse, that's a serious thing to God. Where did you get that? Well, Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 28. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, Everyone who looks at a woman, and it's not gender specific, a man, anyone who looks at someone who's not your spouse, with lust for her, having mentally done things that ought not be done, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus is pretty explicit here. He says, you've committed adultery in your heart, meaning the fantasy has crossed a line into lustful desires. The implications are obvious. He says, you need to cut this out or you'll go to hell. If your right eye makes you sin, pluck it out, throw it far from you. It's better for you to enter into heaven with one eye than to go where? Into hell. So it has to do with imagination. Sexual sin involves the imagination. And I can't help but think in this third category that the wisdom of God 
when he wrote this verse in Job, had our generation and the internet and our PG-13, all these rated movies in mind as well. Third category is watching. Doing, thinking, and watching. See, what do you mean watching? Job 31 verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze, literally imagine, watch with lustful intent a virgin? This has serious implications over making a covenant with our eyes, not watching things that would be titillating, not watching things that would be sexually stimulating. It impacts the shows we watch, the movies we view, every site on the internet that moves us to sexual desire and stimulation is covered by this covenant that we're supposed to make with our eyes to look away. Let me ask you, are you willing to make a covenant and a promise with your eyes? Can I just tell you, if you do this, you will be called a legalist. I can't believe you wouldn't watch that. I can't believe you wouldn't go there or be a part of that. You don't watch this series, people are going to call you all sorts of things, but let me ask you, do you want things to come into your eyes to entertain you that Jesus died for? It's not art. It's sin. Sexual sin then involves doing, thinking and imagining, and even watching. It's a third category under behaving. Let's branch back out, and that's in relationships in relationships. At the end of verse 13, he says, not in strife and jealousy. Two more couplets that he uses. Strife, eris, it means to, to have persistent contention, to bicker, to engage in petty disagreement, to be a spiritual contrarian, always to be the arguer. It means to have enemies and preserve enemies and promote enmity between other people. You're, you cause strife. You're a person who brings a divide between people, not resolution. It's the opposite of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peace, what? Makers. It's antagonistic. It's competitive. It wants to be right at the expense or at, at, the, um, uh, uh, at the play here. The, the desire and design of crushing someone else. Characterized by self-indulgence, egotism, complete selfishness in relationships. And it causes tension, it causes strife. Along with that, he says strife and jealousy. It's a term from which we get the English word zeal. It's also the word that we read this morning in our scripture reading, Simon the Zealot. Someone who's passionate. It has a positive meaning sometimes, but here it's a negative meaning. It means you're zealous and passionate about being better than others and when you're not, you're jealous, envious. Paul is saying when we come to the point where our strife causes us to want bad for others so that we can be promoted and experience good, 
we've crossed the line. Peter makes this summary in 1 Peter 4.3. So, so timely. He says, For the time is already past. The time already past, rather, is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. You're done with the night. It's time to get in the day. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He sums it all up and says you worship the creature and pleasure rather than we do the creator. So what do you do? How do you, how do you fix your broken soul? I love, I love, I love the genius of Paul, the genius of the Holy Spirit, who when he says put off something, he also tells us what, what to put on, which brings us to the fourth way to behave like a believer. Transform to the character of Jesus. Transform to the character of Jesus. This is nothing short of amazing because you don't expect him to say this. Don't blow it in self-control. Don't blow it in your relationships. Don't blow it in any category of sin that you find yourself tempted by. And you feel like, oh, okay, I'll try to stop. He says, but let me tell you what to do. And you would expect him to say, act differently than that. And he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, where he says other places, put off these deeds, put on these deeds. He does that in Colossians. Here he says, put off the deeds of darkness. And look at this. How do you do this? Put on, verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you put on a person? Sit in my lap, right on my shoulders. How do you put Jesus on you? Just for a moment, flip over to Ephesians. I want you to see this. Because he explains this explicitly to the Ephesian church almost exactly in the order that he just did in Romans verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4 Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 and if you underline things in your Bible we've been here before this is a great place to mark this is a great place to highlight because it's so unexpected again he's talking about our old days Ephesians 4, 17. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Notice all this thinking and mental um, uh, uh, concentration. It reminds us of do not be transformed the world. I mean, do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your thinking. Look at this. The futility of their mind being darkened in their, here it is again, understanding excluded from the life of God because of their, here it is again, ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart, another thinking term. They become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then you would expect them to say, but you did not learn to live this way. Look at what he says. Mark this. You did not learn Christ in this way. Do you see that? He's not talking about behavior modification or lifestyle change before. He's talking about a living, vital, 
real relationship with Jesus. You did not learn Christ in this way. Indeed, if you have heard him, if been taught in him, just as truth is where? In Jesus, that in reference to your former life, you would lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. What a phrase. Your lusts, my lusts, deceive us. They're liars. We're not going to get what they promise. Meaning and satisfaction. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Look at these thinking terms again. You put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. It's been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Put all that together. It's a mental thing to be pulled into darkness. It's a mental thinking thing to be pulled into the light. And you change your mindset by thinking about the Savior. You're thinking about Jesus. You're focused on Him. That's what Paul said to the Philippians. Whatever was, was gained to me, it's lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He doesn't say for the surpassing value of doing better, trying harder, being more good. If Jesus is not the goal and center of your faith, you will never be satisfied with merely changing your behavior. How do you do this? How do you learn Jesus? How do you put Jesus on? It's not, it's not super complicated. Ready for this? Read the Gospels. That, that's where he is. That's where you learn what he's like, what he said, how he acted, what he didn't do, what he did do. Read the Gospels. Take the Lord's table seriously because he said, do this to remember me. Make Jesus the object of your meditation, the focus of your faith. Drive around. Turn the radio off and do your ironing. Cut the grass. Whatever you do where your mind can be in neutral, engage it in drive and drive straight to thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done. People have written on this. Maybe read a book called Uneclipsing the Sun. It might be helpful. And then lastly, refuse to strategize ways to sin. I was tempted when we got here to spend another three weeks on this verse, on this half verse rather. It's so profound. Put on the Lord Jesus, as a, that's the one side of the coin, on the other side, and make no pronoia, plan, strategy, provision for your flesh, your sinful desires, regarding our lusts. This word provision is so strategic because it means have no strategy. Have no plan for sin. You know, if, if I'm honest with myself, I, and I hate to confess this, but I think I need to, I'm really good at strategizing for ways to sin and by justifying things and allowing things. Paul says, have none of that. It should be a point of serious reflection and evaluation and meditation to put the ways of our lust to death. This is the Joseph principle. Potiphar's wife makes a move on him. What does he do? 
He ran. Sin, the awareness of sin, equals run away. Pretty simple. Or do you find yourself seeing how close can I get to sin? You know there's that old um, uh, uh, adage, don't go to the grocery store hungry. I did that yesterday. I came home with things that were really interesting. Kim sent me for milk and I... Anyway, um, grocery stores have a lot of good things, but that's for another time. Do you see how close, how closely you can get to sin and closely you can walk by the cliff, how close you can get to the line or how far away can you be? We've said this so many times, often when couples before they're married, say, how, how far can we go physically? That's saying, there's sin, how far can we go that direction? We ought to be saying, how holy can I be? How far away can I go? The contrast of forethought and planning is central. Are you planning? Listen, are you planning for the return of Christ in preparation or planning ways to sin and justify it. And again, back to Jesus. Read it earlier, John 3, 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the darkness. He's the light. But men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. When we began this series in chapter 12, I told you that if we learned these two chapters and applied these two chapters, it would change our lives, impact our marriages, and reorder our church. Are you putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no strategies or plans or provision for the flesh and your lust? in regard to that which draws you away from Christ towards sin. If you're like me, you, the Spirit of God's working on you, you know full where, full well, an area or some areas that the Holy Spirit just turned the light on in this passage. Great. What are you going to do about it? Is it your computer? Is it your smartphone? Is it a relationship that you just won't reconcile? Is it a, a desire, an idolatry that you just will sin and sacrifice to get, to experience? Are you making plans and strategies and provision for the fact that Jesus might come back today? Are using your energies and your plans and your provisions to get as close to sin so that you'll get to enjoy it. That's how Paul puts the exclamation point on these two chapters. Put on Jesus. We're not a group of people, we're not a social club for behaving better. We're the body of Christ who loves our head and our Savior.
Would you bow your heads for me, please? If you don't know Jesus, boy, what a great passage for you to make this awareness. Please, let me beg you, please don't leave this room without speaking to me or someone around you about the fact that you are not ready should Jesus return 